Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are continuing right along in part six of this seven-part series. Um, the outline notes as well as previous recordings are all available through our website, and that is new-life-ministries.org. Uh, if you haven't done so, I would strongly recommend downloading those notes so that you can have them to follow along. Um, obviously, this is quite a long Bible study, and we've actually come to approximately page 137 in those notes. So a lot of scripture, a lot of previous material that we will not uh, be going over and over, but I'll just give a quick overview to sort of launch us into what we want to do tonight. Um, looking at the big picture, we've been studying Israel coming out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage, going through the wilderness into a land that God had promised way back in the early chapters of Genesis to Abraham and his descendants. We refer to it as the promised land, the land of Canaan, has different uh, terms in the Bible, but it was spoken of as a marvelous place where God was going to take his covenant people, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land fruitful and rich and abundant in everything, one small problem. From the beginning, he was telling them that when they got there, there were going to be seven enemy nations occupying that promised land that needed to be conquered and driven out. Very interesting picture. And all of this is a type and shadow of our journey in Christ. We begin also as slaves in the slavery of sin. And Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, his shed blood on Calvary is what breaks that yoke of bondage off of our lives, and we begin this journey into the abundant life, a, a life based on the promises of God, ultimately taking us into heaven itself, into a heavenly inheritance and eternal life. We've looked at six of the seven nations that are listed in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, and we began last time introducing the seventh and the final of those seven enemy nations that Israel had to conquer. After crossing the River Jordan into the Promised Land, one by one, they had to deal with these enemies. And as Christians, I think we learn rather quickly that if we want to follow Jesus, we're going to be meeting some opposition. And we have to put on the whole armor of God because we're in a war. And the New Testament speaks a great deal about spiritual enemies, even powerful forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians 6 is one of the clearest uh, expressions of that. Put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand 
and he talks about these entities in heavenly places, spiritual wickedness, darkness, evil forces that must be overcome by the church, by the believers. And so these literal nations that Israel had to conquer, each one of them represents a certain group or class of evil spirits, evil entities that we're going to have to conquer in our journey with Christ. All right, let's get right down to it. The seventh and final nation we've kept for last for several reasons. The Jebusites were often listed last when these different nations are enumerated in the Old Testament scriptures. In many of those lists, by no coincidence, the Jebusites were listed last. And we saw last time a couple of important things about the Jebusites. Firstly, the meaning of their name, I think, is highly significant. It means trampled down, trodden down. That's the literal meaning of Jebusite, trampled or trodden down. And in the context, we're taking this to represent a spirit of discouragement or depression. This is something that wants to trample us down. It wants to knock us down, to render us uh, incapacitated. And we saw that the last of the seven nations to be conquered was indeed this nation, the Jebusites. And it actually was many, many years after Joshua's time. It was actually during the reign of King David that the Jebusites were finally and ultimately conquered. And another highly significant point that we're going to be building on a little bit further along here, the Jebusites lived in what was to become Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David, the very stronghold of the whole kingdom of Israel. So, very interesting that this final stronghold, Jerusalem, is where the Jebusites were holding out, and only David was able to defeat them and finally establish his kingdom, his kingdom throne, literally, right there where the Jebusites had once dwelled. And we saw even when David went in to conquer the Jebusites, the very voice of the Jebusites was a voice of discouragement. They were saying, you will not get in here. David cannot get in here. Even the blind and the lame will be able to ward him off. It's just a discouraging voice that says, you can't. We win, you might as well not even try. <clears throat> and we also looked at some length at that saying, the lame and the blind. The Jebusites were the ones who were saying that. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. 
But then it became a saying in David's camp. And he began to say, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those, and then in quotes, lame and blind who are David's enemies. And actually, we saw last time that the spirit of discouragement, it does two things to you and to me. It affects our vision, and it affects our walk. It renders us blind and lame. And we begin to lose our vision of spiritual things, of eternal things, and coupled with that, we begin to lose strength in our, in our spiritual knees. Our hands begin to hang down limp, our legs go weak, and we can no longer really walk or do the things that God has called us to do. And we saw scripture after scripture last time where God repeats himself verbatim, saying, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's basically the gist of many, many scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Don't get discouraged, I will be with you. Now, we gave sort of an outline at the end of last week's session, but we want to begin to go much more deeply now, how to overcome discouragement and depression. And if the Old Testament picture is any indication, this may well be the final stronghold that the enemy tries to hold over us that must be broken if we're to truly overcome and enter into the abundance that God has for us. Again, if you're following in the outline, we are on page 137, How to Overcome Discouragement and Depression. At the top of the list, I've placed this one. We need to abound in hope. Hope is a powerful antidote to discouragement, despair, and depression. And this is the very target that the Jebusite spirit aims at. He wants to kill our hope. He wants to make us feel hopeless. He wants to dash our hopes to the ground, and then he can tread upon us, and we become downtrodden. We begin with a very interesting passage in Psalm 42, and we're going to read from verse 5 down to verse 11, maybe skipping over a few verses. Psalm 42, verses 5 through 11. The psalmist says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan 
the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Let's pause there a moment. You know, I appreciate the Psalms because they're very, very honest. The writers of these songs, they often poured out their heart, expressing their innermost feelings and emotions. They weren't just trying to sound spiritual. They were talking to God. They were pouring out their hearts to the Lord. And this one is especially honest. Why, my soul, are you downcast? He was not having a good day. He was depressed. He was feeling hopeless, downcast, had no peace inside. Why are you so disturbed within me? Then it's almost as if God puts the answer in his mouth, and he answers his own question. Put your hope in God. And really, it sounds a little bit simplistic, but it really does boil down to that simple fact. When you and I are feeling down, when we're feeling downcast, we're feeling depressed, we need to take control of our own soul. We need to take control of our own thoughts and our own emotions, and we need to flick that switch, turn it around, and basically say, no more pity party, no more feeling downcast. I'm going to proactively put my hope back where it belongs. Put your hope in God. And then dropping down to verse 8 in the same psalm. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? And then, very interestingly, verse 11 is a refrain of verse 5. Repeats the exact same words again. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Here comes the answer again. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He was feeling very low. Verse 9, he was feeling abandoned by God. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? He was very sad, oppressed by the enemy. Remember, Jebusite means trodden or pressed down. We get words like oppression, depression from that word. His only solution to this dilemma was put your hope back in God. And it says in verse 8 again, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. I will remember you. That's part of the equation. We just 
get our thoughts off of ourselves, back onto God, focusing back on God, deliberately putting our hope in God. And one of the ways that we can do that is to know certain scriptures that speak about the hope that we have in God. I would even recommend memorizing them. And when you're going through one of these down times, just begin to declare those promises of God. Speak them out loud. Sing them. Talk about them in your house, in your car. Talk to yourself. He's talking to his own soul here. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Excuse me. And sometimes we need to talk to ourselves. Come on, soul, get up. Stop being depressed. Start praising God. Put your hope back in the Lord. There's reason for you to have hope in God. And then start quoting different promises from the Word of God that give us hope. Let's go to the New Testament. Romans 15, verse 13. One of the titles that is given to God in the Scriptures is the God of hope. I like that. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, as we are continuously filled in the Spirit, automatically hope begins to bubble up. We abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the God who lives in us, he's a hopeful God. He's the God of hope. And whenever we come into the presence of God, he renews our hope. Look also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. I mentioned earlier, Paul talks in several places, both Ephesians 6 and here also, about putting on armor, because we are in the middle of a battle. And Ephesians, he talks about the breastplate, the shoes, the belt, and he also mentions the helmet. Well, here he goes into a little more detail about just what the helmet signifies. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, a lot of different sports, football, baseball especially, come to my mind. The players all have to wear helmets. And it would literally be like committing suicide for a football player to go out onto the field without a helmet. And even with the helmets, they're finding that many of them are suffering concussions and even lasting brain injury from all of the trauma that comes to their head. But obviously, it's essential, not only in these sports, 
to wear a helmet to protect the head, how much more a soldier who's going out into the line of fire, he must have on a helmet. The helmet protects the head. It protects the brain. It protects the thoughts. And spiritually speaking, we must have on that helmet at all times to protect our minds because the enemy is continually firing these darts into our brain. Thoughts of negativity, thoughts of failure, you're no good, you're never going to make it, you can't overcome, you can't do this, you're no good, and on and on it goes. We must protect the head. We must protect the mind. And how do we do that? With the hope of salvation. And this is something that we must do. It's our responsibility to put on this armor. God's not going to put it on you for you. You must do it. It's an act of my will. I must put hope into my mind. I must cover my thoughts with hopeful thoughts based on the Word of God, based on what God says about me, and not what the devil is telling me, not even what natural circumstances might be speaking to me. But I make a choice, I make a decision to put on hope as a helmet. While we're here in 1 Thessalonians, let's go to the previous chapter where he also talks about hope, and this may well be one of the key parts of that hope of salvation that he's referring to. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Paul says, Brothers, We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. He's talking about people in the faith who had died and gone on to be with the Lord. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, stop there for a second. Paul makes a rather broad brush statement here that, Either you have hope or you don't. Those who are believers in Christ have true hope. The rest of men, they don't have real hope. They may have fake hope, false illusions of hope, but they don't really have true hope. It's only the Christian who has real hope. He goes on in verse 14, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, 
we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Notice verse 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is one of the best antidotes to discouragement. Just remember what this whole thing is all about. Soon and very soon, Jesus is coming back. He's coming for his bride. He's coming for his church. And those of us who love him, who love his appearing, who are in him and waiting for him, we will be caught up together with the Lord, and we will be with the Lord forever. That is our hope. And let me insert something here. When we're talking about abounding in hope, we're talking primarily about this kind of hope. And you'll see this in some more scriptures that we're going to look at in a minute. We're talking about hope beyond the grave. Hope beyond this earthly existence. Call it a heavenly hope. Call it an eternal hope. But it's not just hope in this life. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, the scripture's not in your outline, but you can look it up, he basically says, if as a Christian, my only hope in Christ is for this life, I am of all men to be pitied, or one Bible says, of all men, most miserable. Now, when we come to Christ, he does give us hope of a better life, even in this world. We have peace, we have the joy of the Lord, we have fellowship with other Christians, and so forth. But, we may also go through persecutions, sufferings, and a lot of hard times. So, if you're basing your entire hope in Christ on this life, you will become very disillusioned and very discouraged at some point. That's why he says, if in this life only, key word, only, we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Why? Because we missed the most important part or aspect of our hope. It's not in this life. It's in the life to come. It's in the world to come. It's a heavenly hope. And many times in the New Testament, when it talks about hope, it is specifically referring to what we just read about in 1 Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the consummation of all things, when Christ and his bride are united eternally. You can see this in the next passage as well. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age 
So we're in this present age, we're experiencing the grace of God that brings salvation, it's changing the way we live, we're saying no to ungodliness and worldliness, we're living upright, godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if I may, let me be painfully honest with you tonight. If you're looking to this world and this world alone to be the hope of your life, you're going to be greatly disillusioned and greatly disappointed. And, you know, we all want to hope for a better day, Um you know, now we're in all of this hype with the election season coming up next November and the Democrat and the Republican primaries are going on and you listen to all of their big speeches. Oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to fix that. And isn't it amazing how decade after decade after decade they make all these promises, but I hate to sound negative, but we keep getting worse off. The economy is worse than it was 10 years ago. We're not as safe as we were 10 years ago. And yet, we keep hoping, maybe this next politician will fix everything. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but the politicians aren't going to fix it. And recently, I was talking with some students at school. They were having a big discussion about the different candidates and the presidential race, and I stepped into the middle of the conversation, and I found these words came flying out of my mouth. There's no political solution for what ails America. Listen to those words. There's no political solution for what ails America. You and I have the only solution to what ails this nation and many other nations in the world, it's not political. It's spiritual. America's problem is not just the economy or terrorists or you can fill in the blanks. America's biggest problem is sin, S-I-N. And it has only one solution, repentance and turning back to God and experiencing revival in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we must be preaching the gospel louder and clearer now than ever before, because as the world is being plunged into deeper darkness, we keep hoping for some earthly solution. There's not an earthly solution. There is no earthly hope. And Christians of all people, we need to be fixing our attention primarily on this blessed hope, not on the kingdoms or the politics of this world, but the kingdom of God, which will ultimately replace all of these other governments, all of these other empires and kingdoms, including that of the United States, while we wait for the blessed hope. And, you know, I find with each passing day, I glance around me, 
and I see the darkness and the confusion that's descending upon the culture, and then I catch myself, and I lift up my head once again, and I say, but hallelujah, Jesus is coming back soon. Oh, I want to see him look upon his face. How I want to walk on those streets of glory. This is not my home. I'm waiting for my home. And, you know, that hope becomes more and more real, and it prevents us from getting discouraged by all of the things that we see happening around us. Let's move on. First Peter chapter 1. This process actually begins from day one when you and I are first born again and become Christians. Listen carefully to Peter's words here. First Peter 1, we'll read from verse 3 to 6, and then drop down to verse 13. First Peter 1, starting with verse 3. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Notice that. He has given us new birth into a living hope hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Where is this inheritance? He answers, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So when we're born again, a living hope is birthed in our hearts because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope now that we're not going to die. We're going to live forever. We may sleep, the sleep of death, but we'll be raised again. We have hope of life after the grave, and then there's an inheritance. It'll never perish, never spoil, never fade. It's being reserved. It's being kept in heaven for us who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There it is again. We're waiting. We're, we're waiting for something. It's until the coming of the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. It's talking about the coming of the Lord. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, if you're going through grief and trials in this life, and you don't have any hope beyond that, you sink with discouragement. The Jebusites just tread all over you. But if, in the midst of trials and sufferings, you have a hope beyond this life, beyond this grave. It keeps you praising God. It keeps you encouraged. It keeps you rejoicing. Look at verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert, minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you 
when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I believe of all the people on the face of the earth, Christians should be the most hopeful. Maybe not hoping for a better government in the U.S. That's okay to hope for that. But more importantly, we're hoping for the kingdom of God. We're hoping for Jesus to come back soon. We're hoping for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And when you're full of hope, we already read this back in Romans 15, when you're full of hope, you're also full of joy and peace. They all come together. You abound in hope, you abound in joy, you abound in in all of those things. Look at, uh, this isn't in your outline, but in Romans 12.12, Paul says, be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. So, hope does just the opposite of what Jebusite spirits do. Discouragement, oh, nothing's ever going to get better, I'm always going to be a loser, I'm always going to be the tail and not the head, I'm never going to get out of this terrible financial situation I'm in, my marriage is never going to get better, my ministry is never going to accomplish anything. And, you know, you can just dig yourself deeper and deeper and deeper once you get on that road of discouragement. Or you can turn it around and say, wait a minute, I'm going to set my hope in God. God is the God of hope. I'm going to allow him to fill me with hope. I'm going to meditate on these promises. I'm going to fix my hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Meanwhile, even if I'm going through trials and difficulties, I'm going to keep rejoicing because a better day is coming. In Hebrews, this is not in your notes also, but in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the writer of Hebrews compares hope to an anchor for a ship. And the, the metaphor is very interesting. If you can imagine a ship at sea and storms and gales are blowing and waves are crashing against that ship, if it has no anchor, it's just tossed every which way. And it may even capsize and sink. But the writer of Hebrews says, we have an anchor. It's our hope. And that anchor is within the veil. It's in the most holy place where Jesus, our forerunner, has already gone ahead of us. So we, we already have a, a line that's attaching us to heaven. And that anchor is going to give our lives stability so that we know that we know that we know we're going to end up where Jesus ended up. Why? Well, in John 17, he prayed, Father, 
I want them to be with me where I am. And that's enough for me. If Jesus prayed that prayer, I'm going to say, Amen. Answer Jesus' prayer, Father. He wants us to be with him where he is. Take us into the most holy place where he is. And we have right now that hope as an anchor for our soul. In Hebrews 10, it goes on to say in verse 23 that we should hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. No swerving, no wavering, no being tossed to and fro. There, there's a, an assurance, there's a certainty that I'm going to heaven, I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus in his kingdom. If he comes tonight, I'm going up to be with him because that is my hope. Look also in 1 John 3. These scriptures are in the outline here. 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What hope? He says all who have this hope. What hope is he referring to? Well, he just explained it in the previous line. We shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. I didn't make that up. The Bible says that. And so that becomes an anchor for my soul. I'm going to be like Jesus. I don't know how he's going to do that. I see all kinds of stuff in my life that is still not like him. Pride, selfishness, anger, all kinds of junk. But I keep holding on, pressing on, believing that he who began the good work in me will complete it for that day. And this is his promise that we will be transformed into his very likeness. And so as we hold on to that hope, profess that hope, confess it out loud, make it a part of our prayers, then we have hope. And he says, all who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. You know, hope is something very powerful that keeps people in the darkest of times and gets them through the darkest of times. But once you lose hope, um, it's very, very difficult to survive. And there are numerous stories and accounts of prisoners of war and people who have spent months and months and months at sea uh, who, by all accounts, should have died. But because they had hope, it kept them going. Job is one person 
If you look at what that man went through, you wonder, how did he not crack up, lose his mind, and just roll over and die? Well, I think this next scripture gives me some important insight into what kept Job ticking. Job 19, verses 25 to 27. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job lost everything. He literally lost everything. But he still had hope. And in Job 13, there's that famous verse, I think it's verse 15, where he says, even if he slays me, I will still hope in him. I will still trust in him. What a statement. Even if God comes down and kills me right now, Job said, I'll still have hope in him. <laughs> what an amazing statement. We need this kind of hope as Christians, especially in these last days, as times are getting more desperate, we're getting closer to the coming of the Lord, the Bible is promised, things are going to get worse and worse, more antichrists, more wickedness, more perversion, more violence, gross darkness covering the earth. But as things in the earth get darker and darker, Isaiah says the church is going to arise and shine because of the glory of God. And in the midst of all this, we can rise and shine because there's hope. So point number one here is very powerful. And I put it first for a reason. The way to turn this thing around when you and I are battling discouragement and depression is to proactively put our hope in God. Get your Bible out if you have to. List some of these verses. List some of these promises. Speak them out loud. Start talking to your own soul. All right, that's enough. No more being downcast. We're going to put our hope in God. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He has promised that soon and very soon we're going to be caught up in the air to meet him, and we will see him. We will be like him. We're going to hold on to that blessed hope like a ship's anchor grabs onto the bottom of the sea, and it's going to keep us firm and steadfast to the very end. Now, I know we're not going to have time, but I want to at least introduce the second point here, and it'll probably take all of our next session. The Jebusites, remember, they lived in Jerusalem. They occupied their, their stronghold, their fortress was in the very place that we now recognize as earthly Jerusalem. That is not a coincidence. 
There is a powerful, powerful message there, and you and I need to understand this. Only David could drive that Jebusite spirit out of that place and make it the city of David, make it the city of God, make it Jerusalem, the the city of peace. And spiritually connecting all of this, the Jebusite spirit, the spirit of discouragement, it wants to blind the Christian, it wants to cripple the Christian, discouraging him from entering and becoming a part of the New Jerusalem. The New Testament speaks a great deal about this place called New Jerusalem. Just as there was an earthly Jerusalem, there is a heavenly Jerusalem. And I'm convinced, after 41 years, this Jebusite spirit, it's a very real enemy, and its stronghold is Jerusalem. We must conquer that spirit if we are going to be able to look toward the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, that God is preparing for us. All right. Let's look at one or two scriptures, and then we're going to come back to this next time. Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 explains why he and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, lived in tents. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. A clear reference to the city of Jerusalem. Looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by the way, he's not talking about earthly Jerusalem. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, because in the next chapter of Hebrews, he's going to build upon this and talk more specifically about the city. Now, jump over to Hebrews 12, and let's read verses 22 to 24. He's now writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. And this is what he says. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So no doubt, there's a heavenly Jerusalem, just as there was an earthly one. He says to the Christian, 
you've come there. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the reason it was so critical that these Jebusites be defeated, they were that last stronghold of the seven enemy nations. It was only through David conquering the Jebusites that the city of God, the earthly city of God, Jerusalem, could be established. David declared it the city of David. It became Mount Zion, the, the stronghold, the throne of God's earthly kingdom, Israel. And the, the, the picture here, I hope you're getting it through the Holy Spirit, the city of God, these enemies were right there on that real estate. The Jebusites had been living there for many, many generations. David had to drive them out in order for it to become Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God, the city of David, which was just a type and a shadow of the real Jerusalem, which is in heaven, the city of the living God. And we'll develop this more next time, but one of the keys to overcoming this Jebusite spirit of discouragement, being trodden down, becoming blind and lame, is to have a clear vision of the city of God. Set our face toward that heavenly city and have a vision that goes beyond this life, beyond this world, fixing our eyes as did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the city of God. Remember, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, interesting that back in Hebrews 11, where we read a little earlier, those are the very three that are listed here. They lived in tents. Why? They were looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By no coincidence, and we'll look at these next time, the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, John chronicles and explains in great detail what he saw in heaven. And he saw the new Jerusalem. And he describes the glory the beauty of that heavenly, holy city, the city of God. And, you know, <clears throat> there are some beautiful things in the Psalms, um, some of them, no doubt, written by David himself, 
about the beauty of that city. Um, in Psalm 48, he, he sings, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. He's talking about Jerusalem. In another place, uh, we read, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. This world is passing away. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. And just as there was an earthly Jerusalem established through David and his conquest of the Jebusites, God will have a heavenly, eternal Jerusalem. It'll be the glory of the entire kingdom of God. And we'll learn next time that it is actually a picture of the bride of Christ. God is calling you and me not only to go there, but to be that city. We are the new Jerusalem. God is building us together, a city with foundations, a glorious temple where the very presence of God will live forever and ever. We must conquer all discouragement, all depression, all oppression, any of these spirits that would try to say, you cannot, you will not, you'll never succeed, you'll never prosper. We must overcome those things, and we do it by faith, by declaring, confessing the word of God, putting on the whole armor of God, and defeating every last discouraging dart that the enemy tries to fire into our head. And remember, we need to protect the head with the helmet, the hope of salvation. We as believers can find great encouragement, great hope through the scriptures. But we must be strong in the word. We must memorize scripture, quote scripture, pray over scripture. The word of Christ must dwell in us richly because when one of these attacks comes, we don't have time to go running and looking for a concordance. If you have time, that's great, but you may not. We need to have the Word of God dwelling in us so that it can bubble up and come out of our mouth, out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. We begin to declare with our mouth, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. Greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. God is not against me. He's for me. And we will defeat you, Satan. We will defeat every power of darkness, we will be the head and not the tail. And as you get those words of God deep down into your spirit, it actually becomes 
a part of your anchor. It's the anchor for your soul that gives you hope even in times of shaking, times of tribulation, and God forbid that we would ever face anything a tenth as, as bad as what Job went through, but if we do face grief or loss or sorrow or tragedy, hopefully we'll be able to respond like Job did. I know that my Redeemer lives. And regardless of what's going on right now, even when the worms, the maggots, are starting to feed on my flesh, meaning I've died and I'm six feet under, I still have hope. I myself will see him. I'll be like him. And I will spend eternity with him. We have a blessed hope in Jesus Christ. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul says. We have hope of glory, eternal glory in the presence of God. Let's pray tonight that we can all abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Next time we'll also see that sometimes we need to encourage one another. Paul said encourage each other with these words about the coming of the Lord. So we can encourage each other. Brother, I know you're going through a tough time now, but look up. Jesus is coming soon. This is all going to pass, and one day there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death, nothing like that. It'll be a whole new order in the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight that we have hope. You've given us hope through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've given us hope in Jesus Christ, and you are the God of hope. Your words, they're words of hope. And Lord, I pray that in these last days where there's so much hopelessness, negativity, discouragement, and despair, let us, O oh God, not be like the rest of men who have no hope, but let us be hope-filled people while we wait for the blessed hope, the soon return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the establishment of his unshakable and eternal kingdom. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every one in this Bible study tonight. Help us to keep encouraging one another, and more and more as that day approaches, as we get closer and closer to the coming of your Son, keep us looking up, waiting for that blessed hope. Faithful is he who began the good work in each one of us, and we believe and we declare tonight that you will complete it for the praise of your glory. Keep each one of us as the apple of your eye. Let us never for a moment forget that you will always be with us even to the end of the age, that we are not to be afraid, we are not to be discouraged, but God, we are to be a people of hope. I thank you and I praise you for this time together in your word. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.